0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, let's go. Matthew chapter 5 is where we are this morning as we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous of all sermons. Certainly uh, some of the most popular portions of Scripture and at times the most misunderstood and misapplied and we find ourselves in verses 21 through 26 this morning so if you have a bible uh, get to that and if you don't have a bible you can find a bible in the chair in front of you we'd love for you to take that bible if you don't have one keep that as our gift to you if you're not that used to looking up verses in the bible in the copy of the bible in front of you you can find Matthew chapter 5 on either page 633 or 810 there um, we'd love for you to follow along. Although we're going to have the scriptures up on the screen, I think it'd be really helpful for you. I say this often, I know just for you guys that have been here for a while know this, but I say this for the benefit of people that might be newer. I, I just, in fact, maybe those of you that have been around forever and you're just not used to looking at your Bible, I just think you'd be really helped if you got into the habit of looking at the Bible yourself. It's God's Word. And um, it is, it is uh, living and active, active and alive. And I'd love for you to become just more familiar with looking at it yourself. So um, have you noticed before we get into the text that I think uh, we just sort of all understand that oftentimes what we think is the issue isn't really the issue. That there's something deeper going on underneath the surface. Well, uh, about 10 years ago in January of 2005 a construction worker named Patrick Lawler found that out. This is from the USA Today, reported um, at a TV station in Denver. The title of the article is, Nail Found Embedded in a Construction Worker's Skull. While he's still alive, mind you. Let me read a little bit. A dentist found the source of the toothache Patrick Lawler was complaining about on the roof of his mouth. A four-inch nail the construction worker had unknowingly embedded in his skull six days earlier. A nail gun backfired on Lawler, 23, on January 26, while working in Breckenridge, a ski resort town in the central Colorado mountains. The tools sent a nail into a piece of wood nearby, but Lawler didn't realize a second nail had shot through his mouth, his sister Lisa Metcalf said. Following the accident... Lawler had what he thought was a minor toothache and blurry vision. (laughs) On Wednesday, after painkillers and ice didn't ease the pain, he went to a dental office where his wife, Katerina, works. We're all friends, so I thought the dentists were joking, Lawler said. Then the doctor came out and said, there's a nail in your head. Patrick just broke down. I mean, he had been eating ice cream to help the swelling. He was taken to a suburban Denver hospital where he underwent a four-hour surgery. The nail had plunged an inch and a half into his brain, barely missing his right eye. This is the second one that we've seen in this hospital where the person was injured by the nail gun and didn't actually realize. You guys are like, ugh, stop reading this. This is killing me. And didn't actually realize that the nail had been, oh, it hurts to even say, embedded in their skull neurosurgeon Sean Markey told KUSA TV in Denver and he adds, parenthetically but it's a pretty rare injury. Thank you doctor for clarifying that. (laughs) Lawler was recovering Sunday in the hospital where he was expected to spend several more days. The doctor said if you're going to have a nail in the brain (laughs) that's the way you want it to be. He's the luckiest guy ever. Hey doc my tooth hurts. Oh really? Let's check that out. No, you actually have a deeper problem. You have a nail in your head. The point of the text that we're going to look at this morning is this idea of anger and what it does. I think on some level, every person in this room has an anger. We have anger issues, right? Right? Don't we all, to some degree? Come on, let's be honest. I mean, let's not put them on display right now. But we all have anger issues. And sometimes we're content to just sort of keep it on the surface. But I think, I hope, that the Holy Spirit will show us that there's actually a deeper problem. It's, it's a heart issue. So let me pray. Or let me read the text, and then, um, and then we'll pray and, and work our way back through it. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. Let's pray, and ask the Lord to help us. Father, uh, again, we thank you for your word. Father, in this room are many, many people from um, each of us have our own individual circumstances and situations and complications and things crowding in on our heart that are making us angry and anxious, fretful. Lord, I pray that you would give us the kind grace to not allow us to stay on the surface where the toothache is, but let us to go deeper to where the heart is. Pray that believers in this room would be convicted, encouraged, and spurred on towards gospel grace and reconciliation. And I pray that unbelievers in this room would, that you'd be so kind as to show them that their deepest need is not to do better in some area of their life, but they need a new heart. So help us as we look at your text. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, to give us a little summary, what we're going to do is we're going to work back through this text. No no notes on the screen. We're just really going to make one overarching point that I want us to see and then Jesus is going to give us a couple examples in the text. But for us to understand where we are to orient ourselves as we've been working through, it's important for us to take this passage in the context of where it sits in the Sermon on the Mount. So at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes and he's talking about what it it means to be a Christian, to be somebody who's not knowledgeable, or proud, or boastful, or has it all together, or has figured it out, but somebody that's poor in spirit, and needy, and humble. So we come to God, not uh, with him commending, saying, "Yes, there's somebody that I can use. There's somebody that I can use." We come broken and humble, and that's what it means to be a Christian. And then, and then he says that this living in this particular way will bring persecution. People are going to revile you, just as they treated your master, so they will treat you. And we should expect this type of persecution and this way of living as a Christian in this la- in this life, and then the persecution that it will bring will then produce in us an opportunity to be salt and light. So Christians are to be people they are humbly, but yet courageously pursuing righteousness. And he says that we're salt and light in this earth. And then that moved Jesus into this discussion about how he relates to the Old Testament. So he's coming and he's teaching, and he's saying many things that are causing the religious leaders of the day to take issue with what he said, and they think that he is contradicting the Old Testament law, when in actuality Jesus wasn't coming to destroy or do away with the Old Testament, he was coming to deepen it. And remember we talked about last week that Jesus establishes, he sets down this truth that the whole Old Testament was really speaking about him. So the prophets in the Old Testament are speaking about him and all of these types and shadows in the Old Testament. These wonderful figures like Moses, who's this great deliverer, who delivers God's people through the Red Sea from the Egyptian captivity, is just a kind of pre-figure, a shadow, a pre-runner of Christ. Because our real issue is not political... uh, captivity, whether it's Egypt or Rome or, you know, Republicans or Democrats or whatever thing that's bothering us at the moment, our real issue is our captivity to sin and the tyranny of the soul that has wrecked all of us. And so Moses and what's happening in the Old Testament is kind of picture of the true deliverer Jesus that will come. And David, this this gracious king that comes and leads his people well and defeats the giant is not meant to be an example for us that we would merely if we just strap up our boots a little bit tighter and face our giants that we can be like no david is a kind of picture of the true and better king the king unlike david who will never fail us, Jesus. So Jesus, the whole Old Testament is pointing towards him and the law. And this is is really gonna come to bear on the rest of chapter five, the law of God, the 10 commandments and then all of the other commandments Commandments and prohibitions. In fact, if you added them up, we said last week, there would be 613 things that the Old Testament says do or don't do, commandments or prohibitions. And Jesus makes the point that all of that law is really pointing towards Him, and He has come not to do away with it, but to fulfill it. And we talked about how important it is to understand the nuances of the law, that there were many laws especially laws about ceremonial cleanness and the sacrificial system and dietary laws and fabrics that you could wear that were temporary laws that were meant to kind of fence off Israel as an Old Testament people so that God would make them distinct from the world so that he could let his light shine in this one nation. And all of these laws were temporary laws That were given to mark off these people. But they couldn't really fulfill them perfectly. And then Jesus comes. And he is the one true Israelite. He's the one true Jew. The only one who's ever fulfilled all of this law perfectly. And now Jesus has come as the fulfillment of all this prophecy. The one perfect law abider. And he fulfills the law for us. He becomes the one true obedient Jew, the one true obedient person. And he says that now these Old Testament laws that had a temporary purpose in God's redemptive plan to mark off a people, show them that they were unholy, now Jesus has lived them out perfectly and they are done away with. Not that he abolished them, but that he fulfilled them. But these deeper aspects of the law, things about how we should treat one another, like don't murder and Don't covet and don't commit adultery and all these things. Jesus then takes the exterior of them and he moves them into the heart. And he says these things are not just still in play and in effect in the life of the Christian, but now they've gone from the outside, mere outward conformity to the heart. So that's why, just as a little aside here, if anybody ever critiques you and says, ah, Christians, you're hypocritical you guys look at the Old Testament and you don't really obey the laws about eating shellfish, that you can't do that, but you look at these sexuality laws in the New Testament and you, I mean, you look at the sexuality laws in the Old Testament and you still think they're enforced. Well, yes, because that's the way Jesus treats it. He says all of these temporary aspects of the law... Are now, they've come to an end because they're lo- no longer necessary. Because now righteousness doesn't come through an exterior law, it comes through faith in me, the true and better king. But all now, all of the ways that God has commanded his people to treat one another, all of these heart issues, whether it's anger or sexuality issues or whatever, are now, they're now not only still enforced. They go from the outside to the inside, and that's what Jesus is going to do here. He's deepening the heart of the law in the life of the Christian. Now, here's what we have to see before we start to break down our text, is that Jesus in the rest of this chapter is going to take just six examples of the Old Testament law, and he is going to say that this is what you have heard said But I say to you this. So Jesus is not, on the surface, we may think, oh, well, Jesus is contradicting. He's saying that this is what the Old Testament says. Now I'm going to sort of change it a little bit and make it a little my version, and here we go. That's not what Jesus is doing. Notice he doesn't say this is what was written. He says, this is what was said. Because what's happening is the Old Testament uh, Pharisees and scribes and leaders that were still the the, the teachers of God's law in the Old Testament period and really were still in this Old Covenant era where Jesus is in Matthew chapter 5 because he hasn't uh, done his work on the cross yet. They would take the law of God and they would put their own often warped false interpretation on it to sort of make themselves feel more righteous. And so what Jesus is going to be dismantling is not the law itself. He's going to want to deepen that. He's going to be dismantling their un, uh, their wrong interpretation of the law. So then, let's look again at our text in verse 21. And what we have to understand before we can even really understand verses 21 through 26... I think we have to understand the verse before it, right? Jesus says, and we ended on this last week, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is Jesus saying? We ended this with with this last week. Jesus is saying that that now righteousness is not a matter of exterior conformity, but it's an issue of the heart. How can we, if, if entrance into heaven, listen to this, If entrance into heaven now depends on us being more righteous than the most outwardly righteous people on the planet at that time, what hope do we have? The hope is is that Jesus is saying that what you need is not exterior conformity, your righteousness now needs to move from the outside to the inside. And the only way that that can happen is us having a new heart and having it granted to us by God. So then, verse 21, this is what Jesus says. He takes one example, the commandment about murder. And he says in verse 21, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, he says, you've heard, and that actually was written. But they've taken, what is happening here is they've taken the, the one of the Ten Commandments and then later on in Numbers, one of the consequences of murder, and they've put them together. And now Jesus is going to tweak their their teaching of this. He's not saying that, of course, that it's... Still not enforced not to murder, but he's going to deepen it. He's saying now that it's deeper than just being able to not murder people with your hands. There's an issue going on here in our heart. But before we even do that, you have to realize what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you have heard that it was said. So he's, he is correcting their wrong oral tradition, not the word of God. He's correcting their wrong teaching. These people, and here's the application, these people that Jesus was speaking to at this time were vulnerable to poor teaching. Fast forward 2015 years, or however long it has been since then, we are still vulnerable to poor teaching. Especially in the land where everybody kind of has some sort of loose connection to some sort of biblical teaching, right? I mean, I mean you know, my grandma, she used to uh, play the piano at, at the Baptist church. And it, you know, my uncle was a deacon or my daddy used to, you know, count the money or, or whatever. And these strange loose, not strange, these loose affiliations... And this commonality that we have with God's Word, and all of the, uh, let's just call it like it is, uh, uh, the the often unbiblical teaching that just is sort of pumped out there on airways, sold oftentimes in bookstores, just just produces in us an unfamiliarity with the actual Word of God, and a familiarity with oftentimes a wrong teaching. I remember sitting with a guy one time in this church, and he says, well, you know, like the Bible says, God helps those who help himself. And I'm like, I, got, I just want to call a timeout, throw a flag, clipping, 15, wait a minute. That's, that's actually the opposite of what God's word says. God helps those who can't help themselves. That's the gospel. And so Jesus is tweaking their wrong teaching that the people are just accepting leaving them in this false notion that they are okay with God merely if they don't kill somebody and Jesus is saying no that the point of the law from the beginning even until now is not just merely that you don't strangle somebody but it's a deeper issue of the heart so he goes on to say in verse 22 I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother. Now he rightly teaches. He doesn't bring a new interpretation or a, he's 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 finally showing them no that's you've been misunderstanding the law. What what the law is for is our hearts, not just our hands, our hearts. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is so serious about this that he says that this will bring judgment. That what's going on here is not just a sort of horizontal relationship between man and man, but it comes to bear on our relationship between uh, man and God. And it's very significant at the beginning of verse 22 that Jesus says, I say to you, that would have been scandalous. That certainly caused the Pharisees to grit their teeth. By saying, I say to you, he is assuming authority. It's Jesus's subversive but clear way of saying to these people, I am no mere teacher. I am God. And You think about even our culture today, we think about people that will accept somebody that says, you know, hey, I believe in God, or he's a God-fearing man. In fact, you even see, I think you see it really played out in, like, um, sports personalities. Uh, it's okay if a sports personality publicly uh, kind of alludes to their belief in God or something kind of sort of very shallow and vanilla-like, you know, the man upstairs at, a, at an interview at the end of a game, you know, I you know, just want to thank God. But the moment that the name of Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, is brought in, there's a specificity that, that, that an authority that the world reacts negatively to. And Jesus is here claiming that authority. He says, but I say to you, That everyone who's, not just doesn't commit murder, but everyone who has these murderous thoughts in their heart, who's angry with their brother, is liable to judgment and ultimately liable to the hell of fire. So what's Jesus' point before we look at two examples in in verses 23 through 26? What is Jesus' point? Jesus' point is simply this, that he has not... Come to do away with the heart of the law, but he's come to deepen it. The point of the law was never mere exterior conformity, but interior transformation. So in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says something really, really significant. He says this Old Testament, this law was meant to be like a guardian or a tutor. It was meant to be like a schoolmaster that would lead God's people to Christ and how does it lead us as we read the Bible as we read the Old Testament as we read these admonitions it's meant to produce in us not this thing not this sense that yes I haven't murdered anybody today so I must be okay with God it's meant to go from the outside of us, not to just settle with the fact that, oh, there's a toothache and I can just sort of take medicine and be okay. It's, no, the, what's behind this law is this heart that the law is getting at that Jesus now, now exemplifies and draws out and it's meant to bring us to this point where we realize my heart is the real problem and there's no way that I can rightly have my heart aligned with God and people around me unless God transforms me that's the point that Jesus is trying to bring out of the whole Old Testament and then he's trying to teach these people is that just because you have a toothache that you can manage is not the issue the issue is your heart that is sick this has been the plan from the beginning of time we see in God's redemptive plan he creates everything that is And as the pinnacle of creation, Adam and Eve, they fall in Genesis chapter 3. A lot of times people talk about how bad things are nowadays. They have been bad since Genesis 3. It's been getting just progressively worse. And then Jesus comes, and he establishes a, a, like a beachhead of his kingdom, and his kingdom is getting better and better, and and the, the kingdom of this world is getting worse and worse and worse. And what happens in Genesis 3 is that humanity doesn't just have a toothache. A death nail is driven into the heart of all mankind. And here's how Paul in the New Testament interprets what happens in the fall in the garden. He says in Romans chapter 5 that Just as sin came into the world through one man, death entered through sin, and then death spread to all men because all sinned. So what that's saying is, is that Adam is a kind of like representative head of all of humanity. He's like the the he's like the spigot of the fountain of humanity. And he rebelled against God, and he polluted all of his progeny, everything that would come from that fountain, and that's us. And now humanity has been sick, it's been sinful, it's been dead, it's been dead in its sin. But God, this didn't sneak up on God, it's not like the Trinity said, oh my gosh, our plans went horribly awry. Genesis 3 happened Huddle, what do we do? No, we read later on in the Bible that God has planned redemption from eternity past. About Jesus, it says that he was slain before the foundations of. The world. Ephesians 1 tells us that anybody that's ever a Christian has been predestined for adoption before the foundations of the world. So God, knowing that sin, in fact, in a kind and mysterious and providential act of His mercy, He even allows the fall as part of his plan, so that he can save a great multitude of people from the fall. And right after the fall, he begins to start working his redemptive plan. He speaks to Adam and Eve and says, it's going to go rough for you. Mama, it's going to hurt when you have babies. That's what he says to her, right? I've seen it four times, worked out in my own life. It was not a pleasant experience, and I wasn't even the one having the baby. I remember uh, our first child, I Not not the first child, actually all four. I almost fainted. I am such a wimp. And Jennifer still is a little bit bitter. In fact, this text will be good for her about dealing with anger. (laughs) That um, moments before our first child was born, um, it was just, it it was too much for dad. And I was about as white as this sheet of paper and um, this sweet, sweet nurse over at doctor's hospital just started to fawn over me and said, Oh, honey child, you need to sit down. Brought me orange juice and like some candy. and Because it was really hard on me, you know. <laughs> Where was I going with that? Um... Oh yeah, so he says to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, It's going to be hard on you, sister. And he says to He says to Adam Look here bro You're going to toil You're going to work the ground You're going to be frustrated You're going to Things are not going to go Like you want them to go And this is all a consequence of the fall And it wasn't just some mere consequence Because Paul then later interprets for us in Romans 5 What's really going on there Is that death entered in he, 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 He expels them from the garden And to be expelled from God Who is life Is to die Now Adam and Eve were still physically alive, but they were spiritually dead, cut off from him. But God doesn't leave them without hope. Now he turns his eyes on that little sly serpent who's who's personifying Satan. And he says to that serpent that there's coming a day when the seed of this woman will crush your head. And that's just not talking about one of the Old Testament cats like Abraham or Moses. It's talking ultimately about the seed of the woman, Jesus, the God who becomes man, who will one day, as Romans 16 says, put his foot, his heel on the head of the serpent and crush him under our feet. And that happens on the cross, Right? And so the gospels being preached there. But now God then begins this Old Testament plan of redemption where he raises up a people and he makes them distinct and he gives them this law. And all of it is pointing towards Jesus because what God is concerned about is fellowship and relationship. He doesn't want mere external conformity. He wants his people's hearts. And now Jesus has come and he has obeyed the law that was there to show us that our hearts were wicked and he's obeyed it for us. And now what Jesus is saying to us is he is saying, I am the fulfillment of what all of these prophets have been saying. In fact, we read it last week in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, these great promises in the Old Testament where the promise of the gospel is that God will one day take out our dead hearts of stone and give us a new heart friends that is the great hope of the gospel and Jesus is saying here that now to be one of his people is not mere external conformity but internal transformation the point has always been the heart that's Jesus' point The problem is, as we just read in Romans 5, is that our hearts are dead. And so we need God to do exactly what he promised to do in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37. We don't need tips. We don't need to be guilted into obedience. We don't need to be shamed into obeying God. We don't need a a sort of condescending look from a religious moral figure, authority from the Sunday school teacher who's disappointed in us because we haven't done this or that. Friends, we need to be brought back to life. We need a new heart. And if you are a Christian in here, That is what has happened to you. Now, it may have happened to you like it happened to my wife who grew up in a God-fearing home where Jesus was taught, where her parents knew the Lord. And maybe at a very early age, you, you, you like her, you just came to just accept Christ. You didn't ever remember a time when you weren't trusting in Jesus. That's her testimony. But there was a time when Sweet, cute, little, red-haired, brown-eyed Jennifer Roberts. Heart was dead in sin. And praise God that her testimony is at a very young age that she can't even remember it was brought to life and she trusted in Christ. I pray that's the testimony of every child that's here today. I'm, I'm praying and hoping that that's the testimony of my children. It seems to be the case so far, praise God. My testimony was very different. The way God brought me to life... I remember hearing the gospel for the first time on March 16th, 1989. It was about 7.30 in the evening. And my brother, who was away playing football in college, had brought some of his buddies from his team. A couple of them went on to play in the NFL. And they cornered me in my parents' den earlier that afternoon. And they said, basically, this is the way the conversation went. Brad, do you think you're a Christian? Yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> and one of those guys, I remember his name was Tom Sanfratello or something like that. Some big Italian guy. He was hairy. I just remember there was hair coming out of his ears. <laughs> which, I mean, I'm not against the, the hairy Italians. I, you know, I, I grew up with a few. And he just kind of went through the scriptures about how I was a sinner and my heart was sick. Sick that the things that I was engaged in that my brother knew about were evidences of the fruit of my life. And he said, you need a new heart, and Jesus died for you. And then they had to go back to college that afternoon, and my brother's girlfriend, who is now my sister-in-law, took me to a revival that was being held in my high school gymnasium. And this former heavyweight champion of the world named Ernie Shavers, who was a boxer, Who had been hit in the head by Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier and George Foreman for most of his adult life, and who could barely speak English because he was just punch drunk. It was the first time I ever heard the gospel publicly proclaimed. And I responded to his message and prayed to trust in Christ. Now, whether or not I was truly born again at that moment, I don't know, but I know that that was the beginning of the birth canal of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I became a Christian either that night or sometimes shortly after. God took, listen to this, the message was not do better. The message was you are dead. Your problem isn't anger or lust. Lust. Your problem is much deeper than that. Your problem is your heart and it's dead. And what can dead people do about their dead hearts? Nothing. They are completely dependent on the sovereign grace of God to do what he promised to do in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, to do heart surgery, to open up our chest take out that dead heart of stone, throw it away and everything that plagued it and put in a new heart that now is alive, that now is tuned into not the ways of the world, but to his ways so that it will beat and love and live in ever increasing obedience to him. If you are a Christian, that is what has happened to you. That should cause you to be the humblest cat in the world and it should cause us to be deeply worshipful, grateful people. And if you are not a Christian and God is making you aware of that, that friends, listen, I say this with every bit of humility, that is your only hope that God would do that for you. And if you are hearing these words, and if it's making sense to you, friends, I believe that that is clear evidence that God is, in fact, doing that right now for you. So what you need to do is not reason to do better or work on your anger problem, or whatever else that you may be tempted to run off to to try and improve. No, what you need to do is for the first time look away from yourself and realize that you are completely dependent on God's sheer, mere, sovereign grace. And look to Him and put all of your hope in Him. And then Jesus then gives two examples of what that looks like very quickly and will be done. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, this is, what, this is what a new heart will do. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus' point is... That the externals of religious practice and obedience are hollow unless our hearts are right. Not only with God vertically, but the way that we know that our hearts are right with God vertically is the heart begins to bend out horizontally to others. We'll take the time to read it, but let me just summarize. There's this really, really poignant seen in the life of Saul in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 15. God commands Saul, the king of Israel at that time, to take this city and to kill all of these people in this city because these people had treated his people poorly in years past. And what's happening there is God's not just some sort of, you know, uh, murderous egomaniac. What he's doing is he, is he is showing the consequences of rebellion against him through his people and he's commanding Saul to take justice on these people who treated his people badly. And he also doesn't want his people who he's trying to form into his glorious light to the nations. He doesn't want them mixing with these people religiously, right? So he tells Saul, exterminate all these people and don't take any of their stuff, any of their trinkets, any of their cows, any of their sheep. Don't, don't take any of it because I, I don't want you, you know, mixing with that pagan idolatrous group of people. And Saul's like, I, I got it, got it. Saul attacks these people, kill them all, but he sees some sheep and some some cows that look like they'd be pretty good loot. He keeps a little on the side. God speaks to his prophet Samuel and says, "Ah, Saul disobeyed me. Go bust his chops. Samuel does that. And he says, hey, Saul, how'd it go obeying God? And Saul's like, it went great. Did exactly what God commanded me to do. Killed all the people, destroyed all the stuff. And it's almost as if right after Saul gets out that last little sentence about, yeah, I obeyed God perfectly. In the background, you hear these. It says the bleeding and the lowing of the oxen and the sheep. Just like busting him out, you know. It's kind of like the kid that's got a cell phone on, you know. I, I turned it off. Ring, ring, ring. So as Saul is saying, yeah, I obeyed God. He hears this, bah, moo. Bah, moo. And Samuel says, oh, "Oh, you did, huh?" And then Samuel launches into a sermon, pointing right at Saul, and he says, "Saul, this is where that famous verse comes at, comes out in the Old Testament." He says, "Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice." What he's saying is, is that God doesn't just want your mere kind of partial obedience; He wants your heart. He doesn't want just your sacrifices. He wants your heart. And that's what's going on here as we come into this room, as we live together as Christians. It's as if these, these these little wrinkles in our relationships, these consequences of our hearts, this anger and this this broken relationship that comes from it, as we come into this room and we just let these things fester and go on, it's as if in the back of our minds the Holy Spirit is saying, Moo-ba. Straighten that out. And then he says in verse 25 and 26, don't let the sun go down on this. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, act quickly. As a consequence of this new heart, as a consequence of it now the reconciliation that has happened between you and god must bend out to others so your real problem christian is not anger it's a sick heart but take heart because god has given you a new heart so act act out of this new heart and reconcile with one another and do it quickly so as we close dear brother or sister Dear believer, Jesus is as clear as he can possibly be. Our real issue is the heart. The good news of the gospel is that we've been given a new heart. But this new heart is not perfect. It is still growing and tattered and bruised. And it's angry. And we sin against one another. And Jesus is saying as a consequence of this new heart now... As God has reconciled himself to you, reconcile yourself to one another. And don't come in here Sunday after Sunday with the mooing and the bawing of unreconciled hearts playing in the background. Go quickly to the brother or sister that you are busted up with and repent and have the conversation. And come to terms. Go get coffee. Roll up your sleeves. Do the work. Friends, this is true in all of our lives. I don't come to you saying, now boys and girls, run off on your homework assignment and fix all of the broken relationships. We all have these. Believer, that's what Jesus is saying. As God has reconciled himself to you, now be reconciled to one another. An unbeliever, as I've said earlier, your greatest need is not managing your anger but the only way you can manage your anger the only way you can be reconciled to a world around you is if you are first reconciled to God and your only hope is him doing that and if you're hearing that I believe that's evidence that he by his Holy Spirit is causing you to have life he's giving you life look away from yourself and put your hope in what Jesus has done on the cross to bear God's wrath for you. Absorb it, extinguish it, satisfy it, rise again in victory, and now command you to follow him in ever-increasing joy. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Do that even now. Let's pray. Father, as we... Consider these words this morning. I think I speak for everybody in here when we say we confess that our hearts are um, tattered with anger, frustration. Help us not minimize that, but realize that what that is is really At its core, murderous thoughts. Which then reminds us of our utter need for you. And if we are trusting in you, it should remind us that the only reason we are reconciled with you is because you have given us a new heart. And by your Holy Spirit, you convict us and show us that as we have been reconciled to you, you now call us to take this anger and frustration that we have with the world around us and to bend out reconciliation horizontally to those around us. Lord, I pray that the sun would not go down on this day unless there is the, until there is the initiation of reconciliation in relationships, even in this room, that are just busted up and tense and separated and frustrated and angry. God, would you do that? Would you do that in my life? And would you do that in the life of my brothers and sisters in this room? Lord, would you put right now, would you, would you put that, that one situation on the hearts of your people and would you, would you magnify it and would you put in us a restlessness until we start that conversation until we initiate reconciliation and Lord for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ the instruction today is not mere anger management the point today is that we are people whose hearts are sick and wounded in fact dead and the only way that we can live like this is if you give us a new heart. So God, would you take my friend who's in this room, who's not, who came in not believing, not putting their hope, maybe thinking that they were hoping in you, but they realize they've been putting their hope in their own morality or self-righteousness. God, would you dismantle that and would you turn their eyes away from themselves so that they, for the first time, see Jesus, the one, the only one who's lived right, who bore the weight of our punishment, and who rose again in victory. God, would they put their hope in him. And as we sing these songs and as we come around this table if we're believers in Jesus, as we come around this table to take this bread and this juice that represents Jesus' work on the cross, his body that was Broken, his blood that was spilled for us. God, would you, would you do something beyond just soothe the toothache of our anger? Would you extract the nail from our hearts and reconcile us to one another? And I pray that you do this for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name.